0: Welcome to Brilliant, the podcast with a French accent, which gives a voice to women who move the lines. My name is Jeanne Dussartel, and between Zurich, where I live, and Paris, where I come from, my goal is to meet the sparkling, powerful, talented, and inspiring women with atypical typical backgrounds and beautiful projects, to understand what drives them and makes them move forward. Discussions that I hope will encourage you to think outside the box, cross your boundaries, and develop your own brilliant projects.
1: Brilliant is about performing at the highest level with, for me, high innovation and excellence. And just somebody who makes a difference wherever they're making a contribution in such a special way that if you took them out of the equation, you would say, oh my goodness, we've lost so much.
0: This week, I have the pleasure to receive on my podcast a woman with an exceptional background, Sarah Springman, has been rector of one of the world's best universities, ETH, since 2015. But that's not all. The number two at the Swiss Federal Institute of Technology in Zurich is also a top athlete and multiple European triathlon champion. For a career-long service to her sport at international level, the Queen of England even made her commander of the Order of the British Empire. In this discussion, you will understand how the British engineer did to pursue two careers of excellence at the same time. We talk about success, and I understand how the practice of high-level sports has nourished our academic career, and vice versa.
1: Nearly 40 years later, I'm still wrapped up in the sport, and it's changed my life and the way I think about my life. And it's helped me focus in a different way. It's helped me take on challenges in a different way. And in the early days, of course, it was, I was very keen to win and to become the best. I worked extremely hard, it wasn't just talent, but later on it became much more a vehicle for doing things for other people. And a little bit when you move from being a a researcher, a top researcher into being rector, where all of a sudden you are in a different role and you're doing things for other people to help them be successful. And it's about them rather than about you.
0: Sarah Springman looks back on her journey in these male-dominated environments and shares her vision of female leadership. The first female professor in Geotechnical Engineering in Western Europe explains why social, cultural and gender diversity in science and research is needed. I ask her about the action taken by ETH to promote greater diversity, and we talk about the cases of sexism that are shaking up the academic world, and in particular ETH's cousin, EPFL. In this podcast, you will discover a strong and resolutely brilliant personality. But I won't tell you more, and let you discover this discussion with an extraordinary woman. Dear Mrs. Springman, thank you very much for accepting my invitation. I'm very glad to have you on Brilliant. We are now in, the, um, in your office at the ETH in the center of Zurich. And I would like to start the interview by asking you what does it mean for you to be brilliant? What did you think when you heard this name for the first time? And do you have an example of a sparkling woman, someone that has been inspiring you that you would like to tell me
1: about? Well, I might start with the second part first. I can think of lots of brilliant inspiring women. I can think of a few British dames, for example, Uh, Dame Jocelyn Bell Burnell, who probably should have a Nobel Prize and has won all sorts of other things and then given all the money away to help up-and-coming women researchers. Dame Athene Donald, fantastic uh, physics professor in Cambridge. In my sporting area, Dame Kelly Holmes, Dame Tanny Gray Thompson, Dame Catherine Granger, all successful as Paralympians or Olympians. Um, I can think of ETH entrepreneurs, doctors Michaela Pudu and Sabrina Badia, who are delivering amazing things that nobody else has ever done before as women innovators. It's so impressive. And they're so young, too. Um, and my colleagues in the executive board, Vanessa Wood and Yulia uh, Danachu, the vice president of the Women's Professor Forum, Eleni Katzi, the um, vice-rector of the University of Zurich, Gabriele Siegert, all brilliant in different ways. So, and brilliant is about performing at the highest level with, for me, high innovation and excellence and just somebody who makes a difference wherever they're making a contribution in such a special way. That if you took them out of the equation, you would say, oh my goodness, we've lost so much.
0: So you have a really long list, actually, of women that you've just been sitting. But in your case, what is quite special is that you've been, in my opinion, brilliant in two careers, two different fields. In the one hand, science and academia, and in the other hand, sports. And to kind of dive into these careers, I wanted to ask you if you could tell us one or two highlights from those careers that could help us understand
1: it's Thank more. you. Well, my, I think my biggest highlight was my appointment at ETH, which happened literally as I was turning 40, although I was uh, told before 40 that I, that I was um, being offered a job and building up my research group, innovating with digital teaching and embedded learning around about 2000. I mean, way ahead of many others. Winning the golden owl eventually for my teaching was really important. And some of the interesting research questions I've been able to try and answer as well in a very multidisciplinary way, where no one else has has been before. That has been fun in terms of academia. And in terms of sport, um, winning the European Championship Olympic distance in 1988 was a sort of perfect race from my side, even though I had to defeat people who were not behaving as they should have done. But I won anyway. That was wonderful. And I think as a sports administrator, when paratriathlon was accepted into the Paralympic Games on top of the Olympic Games and the Commonwealth Games, where I'd also played a pretty major role, I'd led that uh, campaign. That was very important for me because it was not about me as a person. It was about creating opportunity for other people who otherwise wouldn't have had it.
0: The two examples that you give now are two really, I mean, it's more than two. It's really impressive. And I'm, of course, wondering, how did you do to pursue these two careers at the same time? And uh, d- during your life, has it always been clear that you wanted to do both in parallel? Or has it been just um, going on like this? How did you do? And what kind of strengths do you have to help you pursue these careers?
1: Well, I, Well, I think it sort of happened, actually. I didn't planet and if anybody had said to me as I was studying at university you're going to end up as the rector of the ETH Zurich I would have said gosh uh, it must be in Zurich but I really don't know (sighs) so and that you're going to be working in German and that you will learn German and that all of those things I would not have even even dreamt about it so I think the answer is it sort of happens and when I was a doctoral student I had different focuses at different times of year So in the competition season, I would switch off my salary and I would would be an athlete. And in the winter and after the season was over, I'd be planning all my research projects. I'd be taking over the centrifuge and running my experiments. And that all worked really very well indeed. So I think that I did that quite well. And it always helped mentally to have a new goal. And then all of a sudden, you're standing at a crossroads somewhere and somebody encourages you or you have an idea yourself about the next direction and then you start to develop so it seems to evolve in a sense um, and and that's how it's always been
0: when you were young in the in the beginning actually when you were still a student maybe what was your idea of making a career what was your idea in a way of success and how to what extent has it been evolving
1: I decided I worked before I went up to Cambridge as a, a, a draftswoman in an engineering company, and it was very exciting. They were building dams for hydroelectricity, which I felt at that time was a, a very good thing. It was much better than power, power station diesel power stations and so on. And my goal was to become a partner in the company that I was working for, to be the first woman partner possibly, and um, to be able to then help with making the most of infrastructure or building infrastructure to help people live their lives in a better way. And that was very much the case that we worked in the third world. And so when you suddenly provide electricity through a hydroelectric scheme, that means that you supply 98% of the electricity for that part of the country this makes a huge difference in people's lives. And and therefore, it's a very important part of the role of a civil engineer to be able to do that. And I found that very motivating. And uh, I was very keen to do this.
0: So that was your idea of success at the time? Yes,
1: when I was studying and before I studied and then around after I studied. And then I I slightly adjusted from that. And I, I held this dream for five years after graduation. And then I went back to... Cambridge to do a Master of Philosophy. And that coincided with my starting triathlon. And all of a sudden, I was rather good at it. And so I then ended up by having a research career and being an international triathlete. And after that, I found I was actually quite good at the research too, much better than I'd originally thought. And I was very excited about it. So I decided that I wanted to stay on as an academic. And that then was the change of path that meant that I moved away from my um, my teenage dream, if you like.
0: When we hear you speaking, we have the feeling that it kind of, everything came all of a sudden. But it must also come from maybe from your education, from your past, from the way you've been raised. Or maybe it was always like this inside of you. Do you have, uh, are you very competitive? Would you say you you yeah, maybe at school already, in sports.
1: I think that when you're, you grow up in a family where you have three younger brothers, then it always becomes a little bit of a competition mm-hmm. um, in many ways. And so I think probably it came a bit from my family environment. And my mother was quite sporty. Mm-hmm. We used to play tennis together and, and I used to play in the garden with my brothers, football and cricket and ride my bike and do all sorts of things. So I, we were very active. And then when I went to school, I discovered that I was quite good at the sports and uh, ball sports, more ball sports than anything else at that stage. And I found it gave me a relief from the schoolwork. I was quite good at the schoolwork as well, but it, was a, it helped to be able to work hard and then go out and uh, play lacrosse or cricket or tennis or whatever, and then go back and, and work again. So that, I was a child who always enjoyed that. I was good enough to get into all the teams. And of course, when I'm in a team, I want to try and win, um, but I don't want to win at all costs. So that was uh, also a way of making friends as well and coming together with people. So the school was important and that carried on through to Cambridge and sort of a bit through to the rest of my life, I would say.
0: So your aim was not to be the first one all, all the time? Oh,
1: yeah. there was a little bit of that. And certainly there was a, a, a dream to do that. I wanted to be the best at something, somewhere. And when I went to work in Fiji to build this embankment dam, I found I could be the fastest runner over 10K in the country. And I was the best squash player once I'd learned how to play it. And I represented Fiji in the South Pacific uh, Championship. Uh, And then I was the best at something all of a sudden and then I came back to Britain and started triathlon and I could be the best at Britain at triathlon.
0: So it's funny, from what I understand, it's because you were really good and because you had some kind of a real talent for it that you continued and that you became an elite athlete. It's not because you were passionate about sports or passionate about triathlon that you went into it and that you really pushed
1: for it. Well, I think one has to scroll back to understand that triathlon did not exist in February 1983 in Great Britain. I read about it in a magazine. The first race happened in June 1983. I was lucky enough to be part of it, so I didn't have a passion for it before I did it. Um, And I thought, oh, well, I'll just do this thing and that'll be my bucket list uh, done. (laughs) But actually, it turned very much into a passion. And all these years later, I'm still, nearly 40 years later, I'm still wrapped up in the sport and it's changed my life and the way I think about my life. And it's helped me focus in a different way. It's helped me take on challenges in a different way. And in the early days, of course, it was I was very keen to win and to become the best. I worked extremely hard. It wasn't just talent. I set goals and I worked very, very hard. But later on, it became much more a vehicle for doing things for other people, and a little bit when you move from being a a researcher, a top researcher, into being rector, where all of a sudden you are in a different role and you're doing things for other people to help them be successful. And it's about them rather than about you, actually.
0: So you've been excellent in the triathlon. You've been winning many medals in Europe, but also you arrived number fifth in the Hawaii Ironman World Championships in 1985. You were also number fifth in the Nice International Triathlon. You got many medals, but you also had a really important role as the president of the British Triathlon Association and as uh, also honorary member of the World Triathlon You've been actually talking a bit about it, but you've been fighting a lot for diversity and inclusion for women also, but for para-triathlon, namely quite recently in 2016. And I was wondering, is it the role of women to lead the battle for minorities? Uh
1: Um, I think everybody leads where there is a need, a motivation and an ability. And I think that some women have proven for example, in this corona crisis, to be very effective leaders. But maybe we'll come on to that later.
0: Actually, let's talk about this. To what extent do you think women have something special?
1: I I think that if you look at the female leaders of countries, we think about the slightly older generation. So Tsai Ing-Wen of uh, Taiwan or Taipei, Mm -hmm. Angela Merkel from Germany. They're both very experienced. They're very wise and they understand and pay attention to the science. And I think that's been crucial. And we look at the slightly the younger generation, although Erna Solberg is possibly a, a little bit older than the others, Mette Frederiksen, Sanna Marin, and uh, Jacinda Arden, So from the Scandinavian countries and from New Zealand, I think they've shown enormous courage, compassion, empathy, and wisdom as well. And they've also taken the science seriously. And if you look at those countries, actually, most of them have done a lot better than those that have been run by, for example, in the USA, in Brazil, in in my country, the UK, where I think they've been focusing on survival. They haven't really taken it as seriously as they should have done. They certainly haven't paid attention to the science. They've been worried about fake news and all sorts of other things. And power and control of other areas. And I don't think they've done a very good job. And I'm sure there are men who have done good leadership, but I can't really think of it at the moment.
0: So you think there is a different way to lead as a woman and as a man?
1: I think there are styles of leadership. And some of those styles of leadership, for example, consensus building, I feel I work very much in a consensus building way uh, with very much situational leadership and I think there are many different styles of leadership and perhaps men and women can do all of them but what I see amongst my female colleagues is much more attempt to build a consensus than to decide top down how we're going to do things and I think also in the academic world it's much more about consensus building but in politics quite often it's a bit it's a bit different.
0: You've been made Officer of the Order of the British Empire for services to sport, and then you were promoted to Commander in 2012. Because of all this that you did actually for diversity, inclusion, and uh, much more for sport, how important is it to have such recognition, in your opinion? To what extent has it been helping you, maybe pushing you?
1: Oh, it's completely immaterial. It's not a goal. Obviously, it's just absolutely fantastic when somebody recognizes you but you don't start with that goal in mind because otherwise you'd be completely motivated in an extrinsic way because you're only doing something for when you get x y and z or obe Mm -hmm. or cbe or whatever and that can't be the way to do things that doesn't fit my values i think you have to be intrinsically motivated I think you have to get up every day with your passion about what you want to do and what you want to try and achieve. And I think that that's the most important thing. And if somebody happens to recognize you for it, that's fine. Um, And yes, it's lovely to go to Buckingham Palace and it's wonderful to be given the medal by the Queen and all of those other things. Those bring lovely memories, but it's not the motivation for doing what you do.
0: You've been a bit speaking about how, how sports n- nourishes your academic career and reversely. But if you had to pick one or two values that you've really been developing through sport as an athlete and that has been helping you as an engineer and as a researcher, top researcher, and now as a, as a rector, what would it be?
1: Gosh, well, it's very difficult to take them all away. I think when I was uh, working in, in public life in Great Britain, I was a member of the UK Sports Council, There were some Nolan principles that I talk about quite often in my current role, and honesty, openness, objectivity, leadership, integrity is very, very important, accountability as well, but the last one is the hardest one, and many people struggle with this, selflessness. So you make a decision about something that may not benefit you, but it's the right thing to do. And... The ETH values are, um, are diversity, openness, responsibility, excellence, and team, teamwork, and I can sign up to all of those as well. So they all very much cover the way in which I, I try to um, operate, and if I have to take a decision, I will go back and I will think about the Nolan principles and whether or not the decision that we're about to take, whether it actually is, upholds those principles or not. So if
0: we go back to the beginning of your career in academia and research. So you started studying in Cambridge. You said it as an engineer, more precisely in soil mechanics. And I wanted to know at this time, how was it as a woman to study there, to study engineering and to study in Cambridge? Yeah, let's start like
1: this. Well, I I started off and studied engineering science first before I specialized in, in soil mechanics. And when I went up in 1975, there were 15 women out of 250 students. So um, we were very few, and uh, we had many admirers, and uh, we were very obvious. So we used to disappear between the lectures quite often and uh, catch up with each other, and often the only safe place was the women's loo, and it was just about big enough for us there at that time. But in principle, everything was good. Um, You know, people were very open and welcoming. There were no... um, issues that I came across in terms of discrimination or bad behavior. And I, I didn't hear that from any of my other colleagues. So I think we were maybe we were lucky, but I think we also made a bit our own culture. And I think that was important as well.
0: Why did you choose at this time to study engineering?
1: Because I was fascinated by it. I wanted to build things. I wanted to be constructive. I wanted to make a difference. And I could see that in civil engineering I could do that.
0: And what do you think were at the time but are still taking women back from actually going into these fields, into, into engineering, but not only, also in science, technology, mathematics?
1: I think sometimes people don't understand what opportunities are available. And sometimes I don't think we are as good at communicating what opportunities are available. And I think we should think about what motivates people and try to make sure that when we talk about what we're offering as a subject area to study, we cover the range of those interested, for example, in technical solutions who really want to go and bastle with something uh, very, very technical, and those who want to, as I just said to you just before, change the way in which we do things. operate in a very environmentally friendly way, provide energy through water, through sun, through, through wind or whatever. And I think if we can think about the entire range, the diverse range of interests, then we can encourage talented people, uh, clever people, passionate people to sign up for STEM subjects. And of course, they will also include more women. And if we can create a culture around that that makes it not just a survival, but something that is enjoyable, and the people who have been in that culture then go back and talk to their old schools or so on and say, actually, it's really fun, it's really interesting, come and join us, then these are the sort of things that we need to do. And I think we, manage to, we have to manage gender gendered presentations or attitudes. And I'm very well aware that some teachers at schools tell the girls, you shouldn't be an engineer. And and I'm absolutely furious when I hear that. How dare they do that, actually? They should be opening their minds and saying, well, this is what it could mean, rather than shutting it completely. And again, at home, some families, some parents, um, grandparents are not always, always constructive. And that's something that I think is very difficult to change because it's rather embedded and we need people to to then find ways around that in a sense where you can inspire the child to say, oh, I love doing this programming course, you know, aged 8 to 11. I want to do this. I want to do this more. I want to go to gymnasium. I want to do this. I want to do that. And it, it's quite difficult if the parents are not enthusiastic or the school's not enthusiastic, but you can still plant a seed and if you can plant that seed quite early on then it's amazing how much the self-drive can can make a difference
0: yeah because i i've been actually interviewing already on my podcast one student uh, studying neuroscience here at the eth and indeed it's it came from her education that she was pushed actually by her parents i think this has something to do with the early education and with the parents so should we train the parents
1: uh, I mean, I think yes, we should encourage the parents to be to be open and to think about the future. Because if you look back to when you were young, for example, you're much younger than I am. But when I studied, I was the first woman in my family to go to university. Three generations of my father's side um, of the men had been had been to university. Nobody on my mother's side. And um, so, it's the changing role of education and what that means for the future. Now, Switzerland's great because we have the the, the double um, educational way. That's now. I don't know what it's going to be like in 30 years' time. So there will be evolution. And so it's important that opportunities remain open and that people can be encouraged not to forego their education because that is, in a sense, it's a door-opener for interesting future careers and as long as the permeability between the both ways remains well supported then uh, that's also great so decisions you take at 13 aren't going to prevent you from achieving something when you're uh, 35 to 40.
0: We are going to come back to what ETH can do as a university to promote diversity inside such an institution but first of all, just to come back a bit to leadership. So after your studies as an engineer, you said it. you went to Fiji, you've been working on the field and you were a fellow of the Royal Academy of Engineering. You were leading a group of men. And I was wondering, as a woman, how was it to lead such a group? Did you have to kind of to some extent to kind of adapt to the standards that were imposed by men to be considered as a leader?
1: Um, that's a difficult question. Question. Because I have my own standards, I have my own values, and I have never ever had any any problems in formulating a goal and bringing people together to try and achieve that goal. Other than perhaps when I was working on the dam in Fiji, when um, the there were on the side of the contractors uh, some quite. Chauvinistic men who didn't want to be told what to do by a woman, and I remember, every other word to me was a swear word, and actually, fortunately, I was taller than them, so <laughs> I was able to, uh, as it were, face them absolutely and say, you know, you're not being very efficient in how you're uh, communicating with me. If you miss out the swear words, then we might be more able to manage, and uh, actually. You haven't persuaded me with your arguments. The quality of the construction of the dam is important. This is the specification. This is what we're going to do. So please go and do it. And and I think if you develop enough self-confidence that you can manage that, and you learn enough so you know what you need to do, and you are backed by your bosses who help you also, in learning and getting ready, then you can manage it. And, and I've not really had any problems since then. I sometimes think what it was like at the start line in Hawaii, in the Ironman, when 1500 people were starting to swim at the same time. And it's absolutely hectic. And if you can survive that, there's an awful lot more you can survive. And you just have to plot your way through and uh, and I think if you can create a win-win environment so it's not us and them or somebody's winning at the cost of somebody else, then you're much more likely to have a sustainable and sustained commitment to a task than if it's, um, I'm going to win this negotiation and you're going to crawl out of my room and I'm going to be the winner. And if you try and do it like that, then I don't think it's sustainable. And that also, that sort of behavior led to a Second World War. And and look what happened with all of that. So I think we should learn from that and uh, try and operate on a win-win much better.
0: So self-confidence and win-win situation. Um... Based
1: on competence and the fact that you knew what you were talking about and that if you were to say, I need you to uh, recompact this layer of clay... And they complain to your boss, the boss is going to say she's absolutely right after they've asked the questions. And, and, and you don't want to be undermined in such a situation. So um,
0: after your experience on the field, you actually came back to Cambridge and you pursued your PhD until uh, 1989. And uh, you continue to research then through all your life. Um, what took you back to research? What do you like in research?
1: Well, I I went back to do an MPhil because I wanted to learn more about soil mechanics. So my intention had been then to come back to the company, but in parallel, I had been doing my sport of triathlon. I was the British champion that year, and I'd competed in some European competitions and done very well as well. So... And that had also fitted nicely with the research. I had a very interesting research topic, at least it interested me. And I found I was better at it than I'd originally thought. So some of this is this standard confidence issue. And women don't always appreciate where they're skilled sometimes. And sometimes they need other people to tell them that. And uh, Did you and have
0: some people telling you this? Yes, yes,
1: yes, yes. No, I did. I had lots of support and, and I'm quite self-reflective on, on that. I'm always quite critical And uh, when people were trying to persuade me, well, you should convert from doing this master of philosophy into doing a PhD. And then there was also some financing there as well. That was an important part of it and a very interesting project that I was um, really quite fascinated by. So all of those things persuaded me to carry on, but I really didn't have any idea what I was going to do at the end. And then I got a research fellowship at Magdalen College in Cambridge which was quite rare for an engineer, actually there weren 't um, so many being awarded, and that was a sign that I was um, above an average more well in the top say five to ten percent as a as a as a postdoc or as a fellow following the doctoral studies and then after that, I got a lectureship and of course, I think people then were starting to think about wanting women um, and although i don 't think I won the Job because I was a woman. I hope because I was com- competent, and uh, then various doors opened, and I applied to come here. And I think there were 33 men and, and me, and I was the one that was chosen to be the first professor of geotechnical engineering in Western Europe, and the first professor of civil engineering, female professor of civil engineering in um, in uh, in Switzerland.
0: Amazing. So that that, that was in 1997. if I'm right, why did
1: you choose ETH, actually? Well, ETH chose me in a sense because I I received an interesting letter from somebody who was then to become my colleague to say this position was available and it was about foundation engineering, hydroelectric dams or dam design and foundations. And when I looked at my practical experience and my doctoral research, I'd covered all of those areas. So it was like, oh my goodness, Um, I can do this. And it's in Switzerland. And in fact, that sounds quite interesting too. Can't speak German, but I would started to learn German. And I knew I could learn German. So all of a sudden I thought, Mmm, sounds very interesting. And I came to visit. I happened to be in Switzerland about three weeks after I received the the letter. And I came to visit and I was wandering around with my mouth open the whole time. All of the opportunities here. And I thought, goodness, you know, went back from the conference in Davos and wrote my application and eventually was given an interview and uh, then uh, was offered the job.
0: And you would also discover that it's it's an amazing place to do sports, I guess.
1: Well, that as well, but I was choosing it for my career. I was going to leave my country, move to a new culture, learn a new language, set up my research group, all of those things. So one had to be quite courageous to do that, but it was a wonderful opportunity and I don't regret it uh, one little bit.
0: And since then, you live in Switzerland. You've always been living in Switzerland. And are you coming back? Because you've been also really still very involved in, in Great Britain. So how do you do? Have you been coming back to, to England quite often? How did you do? How did you manage over the years? N-
1: not in the last year at all. <laughs> I guess so. So uh, I think we defined very various... But yes, I, I, I have. When I've been in various um, serving roles in British triathlon, in UK sport, I've gone back for meetings, but I've done an awful lot online. Uh, We managed to get our sport into the Paralympic Games mainly by using Skype. It was in those days. And we'd have monthly Skype calls. And you don't need to bring people from all around the world together if you can meet in a virtual space. So I think that's also something we've learned out of uh, these corona times, Mm -hmm. what can be helpful, but also when you need to meet together in person. To get extra value.
0: And how you can save a lot of time, actually.
1: And also not damage the environment by flying people.
0: And not uh, damage the environment, exactly. So since 2005, you are now the rector of the ETH, because after becoming professor, you became the deputy head of the Institute for Geotechnical Engineering, and then the rector. First of all, how would you describe the responsibility, the, the role of the rector of the ETH?
1: Um, well you're the person who is responsible for teaching you are the deputy of the president so you're a member of the executive board one is elected by largely by the professors although you are officially chosen by the eth board and you are responsible for all aspects of teaching going through to links to the gymnasium to make sure that the young people who are coming to ETH are well prepared to be able to succeed, then you're responsible for all aspects of teaching through the bachelor, the master, into the doctorate in terms of supporting the doctoral students and also on to continuing education. So this is the so-called lifelong learning. And all those aspects, including how people pull together their curriculum, how they deliver their teaching, how we support them, how we provide all of, the, uh, all of the organizational processes to make sure that it happens, that there's the legal framework, all of those things are part of the rector's responsibilities. And there's a thousand other things as well. So I sit on various charities recently to do with student accommodation, although I've handed that over at the beginning of this year, to do with childcare, for example, to do with scholarships for talented Swiss students, um, lots of different things that are extra over and above what you would immediately think might be the role of a rector. So it's uh, very multidisciplinary in many ways. And then I give lots of speeches, give lots of interviews. And um, I'm quite often sought for opinion. I sit on committees in Bern that are important for accreditation and for teaching working across the other universities, lots of different opportunities. It, it's a very busy job, I would say.
0: I guess so. What are you the most proud of? Well, From actually, what you, in those uh, five past years, you've been doing a lot. What would you say you are you the most proud
1: of? I, I don't like to use that word very much, but if I'm going to be proud of anything, it, it would be the team, my team and all of the ETH people in the way they responded to the COVID pandemic. Mm -hmm. That has been something that's been really very special and it's becoming more of a challenge now because it's not new. But the very first reactions were amazing.
0: I would like to finish this interview with a a, a last topic, which which we've been already a bit talking about, which are women in STEM and at ETH. And as a researcher, I would like to have your opinion. To what extent is it important to have some kind of diversity in science and technologies? To what extent is actually diversity helping innovation?
1: I think that you get much better solutions and you have many fewer mistakes. So the risk is lower if you have diverse people with diverse experiences and with with, uh, diverse expertise and you help to get a more rounded solution.
0: Because having different point of views is actually bringing more solutions?
1: What? I wouldn't say point of views. I would say based on expertise. Mm-hmm. So the point of view is, I mean, you can, you can have fake, fake news and points of view around that, but founded knowledge and the ability to think in an intellectual way and a practical way, bringing all those skills together to find a solution is what you need to do.
0: And concretely, what is actually the ETH doing to push for diversity?
1: Well, for a start, we have women and men. We have students from 120 different countries around the world. We work very hard to support students who might have a form of disability or learning difficulties. This is very important um, to us. We work with countries overseas in development roles. So recently, we've just announced that we're starting to support Ashesi University in Ghana Mm -hmm. with the development of their first ever MSC, which will be on mechatronics. And the students will, for a period of five years, earn themselves an MSC in Ashesi in mechatronics and a Master of Advanced Studies with us. And our professors and assistants will go and work with peers in Ashesi and they will teach together. And there will be a transfer of, of, of capability, capacity, and both groups will learn from each other. And that's something that's really very special because what we want to try and do is to contribute in the continent where the workforce is needed rather than to extract it and educate it here. And then maybe the um, graduates don't go back. So I, I think those sort of examples are very important. And it's also quite clear that the learning goes in both directions.
0: Mm-hmm. Of course. And concerning women what how are you actually doing at eth to make sure that more because today only 10% of professors at eth are women uh, i think that's that's the last number that i have but maybe you you might correct me this number has been increasing but it's still very low we are far from uh, some kind of equality so how is eth doing to push for equality okay.
1: I think we're around about 24% for assistant professors and we're up to 16% averaged overall professors. So better than your statistics indicate. I remember when I came, it was around 6 or 7%. I was the number nine mm-hmm. full professor at ETH, um, which is awful <laughs> in 1997, considering we were founded in 1855. This year, of all of the appointments of professors, 42.5% of the professors appointed are women, point one. Point two, probably about 20 professors will have retired this year. One of them is a woman. This will make a huge difference. It changes the culture, because diversity very much is influenced by the unit around the professor. And I recall when I was very active in teaching and in research, I had a much higher percentage of research students and female students wanting to come and take their projects with me because they wanted to work um, with me, but also maybe because I happened to be a woman, had some influence on the whole thing. So I think if one has a, a third of our professors, at least, are women, that will make a huge difference to the culture at ETH.
0: Yeah, it will help creating role models that are extremely important to push and to help women actually go into these fields, I guess.
1: The most important thing is, though, that the women would have been appointed um, wherever and that they are excellent and absolutely competitive and they didn't get the post just because they happened to be a woman. And that's a very important thing to say. I don't want anybody to say, well, you're only here, Sarah, because you happen to be a woman and you had a free pass. The answer is no. There is no free pass.
0: Talking about this kind of remarks, you might have seen in the medias that recently, a few days ago, the EPFL, there has been a, on social media this account that has been creating to denounce this sexist and racist discrimination that happens in the EPFL. Have you been, first of all, following this? And how did you react to such testimonies?
1: I watched the videos and I'm extremely sad for the female students that had to experience that. And... I know we did a survey here and we got very low percentages, um, 2%, 4%, 7% or whatever, to some quite aggressive questions um, about whether once in their life they thought they had been given sexist comments or whatever. And, and And I don't want to make it sound small. Any such situation is just appalling and shouldn't happen. But if your university also has to take action against it, and and we do, a lot of it we can't tell you about because everybody's protected by confidentiality. But I can tell you, I spent some of my time uh, making sure that we deal with situations not quite like the ones that they talked about at EPFL, I have to say. They're really very extreme. But there have been other cases here, much smaller intensity, and uh, I have had disciplinary discussions with some people.
0: Are you doing some kind of prevention with with the students, with the teachers? Yes,
1: Yes. we have a a very clear statement of culture. We have a site called Respect. We have a a group called Respect that is in charge of managing any complaints. And uh, certainly when new students arrive, I show them the Respect video and make it very clear that it's no laughing matter. This is something that we do here. And I expect them also to adhere to that. But of course, we can always do better. And certainly following up from what the EPFL students have have suffered, we must go back and have a look and see how we can make it even clearer. But the survey that came through with such small percentages, this is encouraging. But the fact that there were even some positive percentages, even if it's 2 or 4%, that's still too much
0: thank you very much I will just finish with short questions what would be one advice that you would have that has been helping you actually that you received that has been helping you through your career
1: I've always been very constructive and I've been an optimist I don't think anybody told me but I think if you're optimistic then you are able to achieve much more
0: are you a feminist?
1: of course I am I'm a very constructive feminist as well and uh Very much pursuing win win, and I know many men who are too.
0: Thank you very much for your time.
1: Thank you very much for interviewing me.
0: Thanks to you who listened to this episode until the end. If you liked it and if you want to help me grow brilliant, it's very simple just subscribe to the podcast on your favorite listening platform and share it with as many people around you as possible, or on your social networks. This is really a great help for me. Merci à toi, et à bientôt sur Brillante.